Come save us, Stevie Cohen. Will the Chips leader go all in and buy the Mets? Joining us is the post Dan Martin to talk Cohen, Lowry, Yo, and the Milkman. And as we look back, Biggie, 20 years later to the 2000 Mets that won the NL pennant, we are joined by a key piece of the bullpen that year. He was very superstitious. da 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 Turk Wendell joins the show. All that and more next on Amazing But True from the New York Post. Queens, New York. Mets take the field. So amazing. Amazing but true. Orange and blue. Amazing. Here's the pitch. New York folks, it's out of here. We got you. And now, here they are, Brooklyn Zone, number 27, the F-I-double-G-I-E, Nelson Figueroa. Astoria's finest, number 69, it's Jay Swizzy, Jake Brown. Welcome back to Amazing But True Podcast, our Mets podcast from the New York Post. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. And please, if you do use Apple Podcasts, which I know a lot of people do, give us that five-star rating, write in a nice review. Follow us on Twitter at Jake Brown Radio at FiggyNY, where Figgy a week later does not follow me. We'll wait till the eighth night of Hanukkah for that to happen. And joining the show today is Dan Martin from the New York Post, who is not a big Twitter guy, as well as Turk Wendell was a key member of the 2000 Mets, and I was nine years old, and we wanted throughout this season at times look back to that team 20 years later of that ragtag bunch that won the National League and lost to the Yankees in the first ever Subway Series World Series so Turk will join us later in the show but Figgy there's not a ton of storylines you know Yo is looking great it's the big one and we talked with Dan Martin where he's going to play a lot of left field Melky Cabrera and his role we'll talk with Dan Martin uh, Figgy, look at the 2020 Mets projected lineup and you salivate a little bit because with that added DH, it's Nimmo, McNeil, Alonzo, Conforto, Cano, if he's okay and doesn't have the Rona, Cespedes, Davis, Ramos, Rosario. Rosario is your nine, Ramos is your eight. That's scary, man. And if Cespedes does bet six and he is his normal Cespedes, you're talking about a lineup that is dangerous. And then, you know, you mix in if you if Davis one day is replaced by Dom Smith, that's still solid, maybe the order changes Ramos goes up that's a scary lineup I love how we say it every year I've been you know since my days of being an analyst following the Mets every year it's like oh this this is the deepest lineup I've seen this is the deepest lineup I've seen I think what you're seeing is this team has been built to be more athletic Uh, this team has been built um, deeper with more experience with guys that you know if if you need a guy to fill in from somebody off the bench you're not it's not an unknown player it's a guy who's had some years uh, in the big leagues and had some success I think that's one of the things that Brody has done is put together a very nice lineup I think we we salivated with the Ramos signing because he was the best offensive catcher Um, he was coming off of blown out knees and then you know you wondered about what could he do or what what couldn't he do as well Um, the catch and throw part of his game wasn't as good as we first uh, anticipated but his bat definitely played and he was hitting a ton of singles not a lot of pop but that's the kind of hitter that he was he was more of a line drive hitter which is what you need you need a guy who's not going to strike out a bunch and swinging for the fences but you do have those veteran guys around him as well where you have Joanna Cespedes and Robinson Cano and I tell you guys some guys get better with age some guys just 
never forget how to hit. Cano is still going to be able to handle the bat. And when it comes to facing lefties and righties, you're not taking Cano out of the lineup to to make a switch um, just because there's a lefty coming in. It might be an advantage for Cano because he can spray the ball all over the place. So I like the lineup up and down. I, I think you're just talking about that young core four up at the top of that lineup. That's what's really exciting about the Mets and can be exciting for the Mets for a long, long time. Yeah, I don't see many guys at all in a 60-game season getting rest. And when you think of Cano's backup, it's another left and Jeff McNeil, who could play second. Uh, maybe you argue that Lowry is their right-hand hitting backup if he plays second. One of the guys making news waves is Marcus Stroman for his tweeting, and I know he was fighting with Randall Grichuk on Twitter. Do you worry that that kind of gets in his head? He replies to a lot of guys. Sometimes he gets triggered on Twitter. I like you know how electric he can be, and remember, he's in a contract year, so this is a big 60-game season for Marcus Stroman if he wants to get you know $20 million next year, because I don't think he was a $20 million pitcher last year when he came to the Mets so he has a big 60 games ahead but do you kind of worry about the Twitter thing or, or is that just his personality no that's just his personality right I mean think uh, every New Yorker kind of has a chip on their shoulder regardless it's you know what he wants to prove that he can uh, hold his own no matter in what form whether it's on Twitter whether it's you know in a game whether it's up at bat at the plate you know he takes everything um, very seriously and he's passionate about it so you got to love that about him and I don't think he's gonna he doesn't uh, use it as a distraction Distraction. I think he uses it as motivation. I, I'm I'm a big fan of that because I think I had to do that in my career. My career was, you know, every outing could have been my last. You know, it was always a me against the world kind of feeling. If somebody makes a bad play, Delgado misses a ball, makes an error in a key situation. Delgado's not getting sent to AAA. I'm getting sent to AAA. So it was like, you know what? Had I not walked the two guys before him and put it, you know, put that kind of pressure on Delgado to have to make that play, then it wouldn't have happened the way it did. But look. Looking back is always easier than in the moment. In the moment, I'm like, oh, my God. And now I'm going back to AAA. Look at this. So I, I think looking at a Marcus Stroman, I'm, I'll take his passion any day over a guy that walks off the mound and just doesn't care. When you talk about this season and 60 games, not for him. It's 10 games. These 10 starts, 10 starts. No, you can usually you can tread water the first 10 starts. Turn it on the next 10 starts and then see what you really have. He, what he needs to do is he needs to, uh, I mean, hit the ground running. And I think we've seen enough video of him throughout this quarantine of him being ready, being prepared, working on things, constantly working on things. He's always learning. He's always trying to have an advantage. I love the stop and starts and his motion, his ability to throw from different arm angles, change the shape of all his pitches. So he has so many weapons at his disposal. Sometimes it almost feels like it's too much. But I think that's the beauty of Marcus Stroman. When he starts feeling himself during a game and he has that swagger, there's nobody more fun to watch. He reminds me of Lima time when he... Uh, he was in his prime, you know, he would throw that change up and kind of start doing a dance before it even got to the plate. And uh, it, it, he was a 20 game winner. I think Marcus Stroman has the stuff without a doubt. He's one of the frontline starters when he was in the American League East. And that's one of the toughest divisions in all of baseball. He was a guy that teams would go out there and it wasn't you weren't going to have a fun day because this guy was he tried to get inside your head mentally as well. He challenged their whole bench as he's going up against them. So that that, that guy, he's got a lot of talent and a lot of heart. And I, I can't wait to watch him. And I also bring it up because he was on the back cover of the sports section today on, you know, our New York Post. And by our guy, Zach Braziller, who will be joining us this season 
does a terrific job. And a fellow Astorian lives very close to me. I can walk to his apartment right now and knock on his door if I want it. But he, his story was on. I'd have to walk a little bit, sweat a little bit. It's very hot out every day. And uh, sweat towel season approaching for us dad bods. But Strowman is very brash. And, you know, it, it says Brash Strowman with bold new look out to dominate. Blonde ambition. So a good back page cover for Strowman today. And, you know, he retweets it. And I think he, he loves the attention. He loves that New York spotlight. He is a New Yorker. He might have not got that in Toronto. So Strowman is a guy who likes, you know, the attention. And you're right. He's got to have a big year. He's got to have eight out of ten, at least eight of the ten, got to be quality starts. He's got to give you six, seven innings every time. And like you said, you got ten starts to prove yourself this year. Go get it. And you might have a couple more if you can take this team to the playoffs. Last thing before we go uh, to Dan Martin, and we teased it in the teaser, was Steve Cohen. And listen, if the offer is true, Figgy, that he offered $2 billion for the Mets and $2 billion for SNY, there is no way in hell that anyone else is getting this team. SNY was reportedly worth under, a little under a billion dollars in February. The Wilpons own 65% of SNY. If anything close to that number is true and you would figure their value has gone down because all they have now is ultimate classics like a Ruben Gotai walk-off single from 2006 against the Cubs on a Thursday afternoon at Shea. If that's all they got, their value is probably not worth a billion. So if he's going to give you two billy, two billy, two billy, a billy, a milli, a billy, a billy, then there's no way that Steve Cohen is not owning the New York Mets. Listen, uh, you know, the first time that he made the offer and it didn't go through because they wanted to hold on to uh, SNY. Um, and you can understand why he backed out of that. There's no way you want to become the new owner and give the old owners control over the mouthpiece of the organization. It just, it's not a, it, it doesn't have positive ramifications. I, I can't see that turning out to, to work out in, in the new owner's favor. Having said that, if you have the kind of money to double down and say, I want it all uh, in this current uh, economic environment, you would be a fool not to take this deal. And even if it was at the regular 1 billion price and you got 3 billion overall for the organization and for SNY, you still would be a fool not to take that kind of offer from a guy who isn't just looking to acquire a business and take it away from you and blow it all up and make it his own. I think it's more of this guy has been a fan of the New York Mets, has a chance to own the New York Mets. And we don't know what he's going to do. We don't know if he's going to do things better. Uh, spending money doesn't mean you're doing it better. You know, you have to see who he's going to surround himself with the baseball minds he's going to surround himself with. We know he's a great businessman. All right. We know that about him. We know he's made a lot of money, but you can't just make money and go out there. I, I, we've seen it with owners in the past where they go out and they want to, they want to sign the guys who they like, their players that they like. And that wasn't the best baseball moves, but hey, the owner's paying the check. So we're going to put those guys in uniform. I know he's going to, he has a game plan into this. This isn't just a, okay, I bought him, I own him. Now what do I do with them? This guy has a game plan. We don't know what it is yet, but it's always going to be exciting. And I think, you know, for, for the Wilpons, they have put a lot of money and blood, sweat, and tears into this because, you know, they do care about this organization. It, that's an argument that we get into all the time, you and me both, and me and some fans, because they're like, oh, the Wilpons don't spend. The Wilpons have spent 
they just never got return on their investments. Maybe they, they don't have the same amount of investments that the Yankees have had, but it seems like the ones that they did do, what do you got? Daltron worked out. Santana didn't get to finish out his. Jason Bay was never the same after the concussion. Joanna Cespedes was the best outfielder in baseball. They signed him twice. They haven't gotten the max out of that contract as well. I mean, there's a ton of others where you get a, a bounce back reliever on a year where you're thinking, oh, he's going to have another good year. And what we see with relievers, it's like every other year they're good. That to me is where, yes, the money has been spent, but they haven't gotten the return on their investment. Would you want to talk about spending extreme money? The Yankees have spent $3 billion and have one world championship out of it. So I, I get it. I understand it. I just don't think throwing out money is the the end all. You, you know it, Jake. You go to a strip club, you can throw out all the money you want. You're not the biggest winner there. Well, I will tell you, I've actually, this is, people think this is wild. 29 years old, never been to a strip club. And I was, <laughs> I was going to go this year, but I, now I they're there on you. Now, now it's, you know, now you can't really go to a strip club during uh, Rona. I mean, you got, it's like a drive through strip club. It's like, you see it from six feet away. No, Car wash. no touch, no touch. <laughs> you got to sanitize before going to these strip clubs. While you say that, there also was the penny pinching of the Adrian Gonzalez when he was washed up. It wasn't, it didn't cost them a lot. Exactly. But... That's, that's the difference. You see, it, it, you, as you're saying it, you're coming to the realization that. Well, because they had the expectation that he would maybe be the starting first baseman and, and that didn't work out very well. There were a lot of those, or, or, let's sign this or guy. they had a rookie in Dom Smith who was supposed to be gold glove caliber a guy who could hit 300 and all these things that they didn't see the well you can argue that a team spent but they have to spend a little bit yes you're doing scattered big money signings but there weren't many of those and the when they did use the big money it was a bust so maybe those times they used it and it was a bust it frayed them away from others but it's also cough cough bernie madoff that just you know they lost a lot of money because of that so you could tell me that they spent for but for a new york market they didn't do enough and that's why fans are excited steve cohen's not the end-all be-all but he's a positive direction and a fan that is going to spend. Listen, the FDIC uh, protects your money, right? So their money was protected. They were getting their money back that was in that whole scam. So I don't think that deterred them. Did they have the money up front to do a lot of the things? No, not necessarily. But I, I, I still don't think, listen, I've watched the Tampa Bay Rays over the last three years have what, maybe the third or fourth record in all of baseball playing in that American League East. They are what, $46 million payroll compared to the Yankees at almost five times that. And yet the Tampa Bay Rays find a way to get it done organizationally, up and down, uh, the trades that they make. They're, they're very creative in the way that they're doing this game. And that's why I say in this short season, look to the Tampa Bay Rays to revolutionize baseball yet again. They're going to do something. They might go to a three-man rotation and have 15 relievers. The sky's the limit right now with Tampa Bay. Like They're putting in all these things. When it comes to spending the money, and we've seen teams like the Dodgers, the Dodgers have spent a boatload of money over the, since True. they changed True. ownership, right? Mm -hmm. They spent a boatload of money. Have yeah. they won anything? So I I, I, I don't I think it's all about I, spending I, money, but when you're in New York, there are times where you have to, and they have had chances to get guys, and they went with a you know a fringe starter, a fringe a guy who's washed up and finished. I don't have the examples off the top of my head, but they have so many fringe guys that they've signed over the years. So I think, listen, I see what you're saying, and I don't think it's all about spending money, but when you're in New York, 
they have treated this like a mid-market team and it's and it's sad and i think the change the change is coming kids the so, change so is my, the last thing that I, i'll ask is that if it's not top two dollars so the yankees have to be number one because they're new york then the mets should be number two is what you're saying that if they're not number two and they're only number seven in the last 10 years of spending then that's terrible no but new york should be in the top three to five teams okay every sport in new york is that the reason for every sport in new york new york is in an easy place to play why do you think every team in new york is where they are right now yes the yankees have done it but the yankees have created a culture over the last century of being the yankees and that's the way that they do it things. starts at the top figgy and the yankees have pretty strong ownership you notice mm-hmm. the teams that don't stink the Giants have pretty good ownership. They've won titles, usually in a classy way. Lately, they've struggled. But the Knicks, it starts from the top ownership. James Dolan is human trash. He's garbage. He's a terrible owner. He stinks in every capacity. And the Knicks are always trash. If the Mets have a new owner, you're probably going to see a change. And I think it, things start at the top in any company. And you see it in New York sports specifically. I mean, you see the teams with good ownership do better than the ones with bad ownership. I'll make it simple for you. You get a new pair of sneakers, all of a sudden you feel like you can dunk and touch the rim, right? Like Mike. Exactly. So uh, anything new always breeds hope and optimism. So the fan base will be charged up. Everybody will be charged up. So I I, I get it. I get it. But I, I just, I can't sit back and say that they did it. It wasn't Kansas City. It was in Pittsburgh-like, where they didn't spend nearly as much as those guys. They probably spent those two organizations combined. Yet the Kansas City Royals have a World Series championship in that same amount of time because they played great baseball with a nice team and, and a, a, a young core who went to the World Series one year and then won it all the next year. So baseball is not that easy to just throw money at the problem and, and do it. Theo Epstein happened to run into a pot of gold the first time with the Boston Red Sox because he basically got a blank check for the first time. And they said, build us a winner. And what did he do? He had a nice young core. He went out and got veterans where this was their last shot, probably. Did he get the best players in baseball at the time? No, because the Yankees had bought all those guys. What he got was a band of people who hated the Yankees. And that was the culture that he built. All those guys, scruffy hair, long hair, the beards. That was where baseball kind of changed. It was the anti-Yankees. And what they wanted to do so bad was that they wanted to beat the Yankees. And then what did they do? They joined the Yankees, every single one of them, because of those dollars. And they weren't the same players after that point, but the Yankees would pay top dollar for that guy. Maybe the Wolpons, when they're out, they'll hit the strip club and use their money that they're getting from Steve Cohen. <laughs> they'll pay off their debt, and then they'll hit up uh, Sapphires, or they'll, they'll hit up Score. You know all the names of them, but you've never been to them. It's crazy. It is crazy. Well, some of them end up following me on Instagram. I'm like, I mean, are you going to give me free bottle service? Like, well, what if you want me to come? You got to, I mean, I, I'm not made of money here. Like, come on. Uh, so yeah um, well i I tell you what we we won't we won't involve dan in this conversation all right well dan martin will get more into cohen and pg and g-rated things next right here on amazing (laughs) but true All right, joining us now is baseball writer, covers the Mets and Yankees at the New York Post, Dan Martin. Joining the Amazing But True podcast for the first time, Dan, welcome to the show. You're not a big Twitter guy. I feel like you haven't tweeted, what, since 2018? That sounds about right. Are you just anti-Twitter? Are there trolls? Like, what's going on? No, you know, I just I keep an eye on things that way. But, uh, you know, I save the stuff for the paper, the website, all that stuff, you know, for the, for the guys who pay me. Exclusive. I like that. Figgy yeah. likes that round of applause. And oh, yeah. If you were 
were on Twitter, Figgy wouldn't follow you back because he still doesn't follow me back. I make that a point. No, I definitely follow him. Matter of fact, I'm going to follow him right now. <laughs> he'll follow inact. He'll follow a bot, but he won't follow me. But uh, Dan, uh, we're glad to have you on here. Let's start with you know what Mets fans are talking about. I'm not sure you have an update, but want to get your opinion on it. And that's Steve Cohen. I mean, everyone's talking about the proposed you know two billion dollar for the Mets, two billion dollar for SNY. We don't know the exact numbers. We've heard that. He's offered close or what the Mets were asking for. Do you have anything on that? And what do you think about, you know, what looks like the likelihood that he's the front runner here? I don't have any information on that, but obviously I've been following it closely like everyone else. And, uh, you know, he's just an intriguing candidate. You know, his name has been out there for a while. He's already involved with the, with the ownership of the team. You know, in a situation like this, you'd follow the money, right? He's got the most money, got a huge amount of interest. You know, it looked like he was going to buy the team a while ago until someone else shows that they have the finance that he does uh, I would say he's the front runner because you know he can he can do it we don't know that uh, JLo and A-Rod can pull this off you know they've never done it before they don't have the money you know they can get the money supposedly but uh, Steve Cohen doesn't need any help I think it's I think he's got 13 billion so if he wants to spend you know 2 billion on the Mets or 2 billion on SNY or 3 billion for both of them or whatever the combination is uh, I don't want to say it's a uh, pocket change for him but it's not gonna be a problem and I don't think any of the other candidates known candidates can say that uh, I I understand why you know some Met fans might be excited by the prospect of uh, of having him in there just because he's he's got the finances and he's got you know interest in in baseball so you think uh, that he would do what he could to make the team better you know it wouldn't just be uh, an investment for him he would he would actually be interested in the team and the team doing well which isn't always the case uh, necessarily as we've seen throughout baseball where you know I think I saw someone reference uh, when there was the the labor stoppage after the coronavirus was settled uh, in baseball wise anyway that uh you know they compared it to you're not you don't know it's not a hedge fund you're supposed to want mm -hmm. to have the, your team on the field playing too much squabbling over money i don't think that'll be a problem with steve cohen not to say that he'll be a great owner because who knows you know he might stick his nose in where it doesn't belong and create more problems than than he solves but i think he's a he's a really interesting uh guy to to look out and and if he does buy the team uh i think it'll be fascinating don't you think that a rod who is he partnering up with that isn't steve cohen don't you think if i'm a rod i'm looking at the prospects this guy has the checkbook to just write it and not even worry about it. How does A-Rod not side with Steve Cohen in this situation? Because if he's the baseball mind, that's going to be almost like Jeter running, you know, the way that he was going down to run the Marlins. You figure A-Rod would be in touch with Steve Cohen early in this process to try and be involved at least because that takes away the burden of putting together a, a dream team of people giving a little bit here and there and being a 2% owner. If A-Rod's so interested, I, I don't see how he didn't contact Steve Cohen or, or get involved with Steve Cohen unless Steve Cohen just wants to ride solo. That's what that's what I was just going to say. I wouldn't be surprised if Steve Cohen's not interested in, in A-Rod or anybody else. You know, he doesn't, right. he doesn't need celebrity. You know, he's kind of his he's kind of a celebrity in his own right certainly in the financial world so i think that i think that's what it is jeter in, in miami you know they they wanted i think they wanted a name you know, just to, to build the brand a little bit. The Mets don't need that, like the Marlins did. And Steve Cohen doesn't need it. A-Rod -A needs help. Steve Cohen doesn't. Build the brand or tear it down first, right? <laughs> Steve Cohen is pulling his Jason Derulo and riding solo. He's got too much money. I mean, $4 billion, Think about that. Think about having $4 billion, you throw it away, and then you have $9 billion left over, essentially. Uh, well, at least net worth-wise. I mean, I mean, the guy's wiping his ass with $1 billion bills uh, and has leftover. It's pretty incredible. I think Mets fans are excited just 
just at the thought of spending money and a guy who is a fan and he's from Great Neck. You know, I'm originally from Little Neck right next door. I love that angle of it. There's a lot of angles to like. Let's get to the guys on the field. Again, Dan Martin with us. You can read his stories in the post and at nypost.com. Melky Cabrera is an interesting piece that the Mets added, but I just don't see, Dan, what his role is. He seems like he would be a third or four-string guy, or if someone gets hit with COVID, but it does seem like there's a chance he makes the team, or maybe the 28- or the 30-man roster at least off the start. Do you see a role for him as a as a veteran in there? You kind of touched on it there. It's such an unknown with the COVID, and we've already seen guys go down that you know they've got 60 guys to choose from. He was available, so why not bring him in? And if it, you know if somebody gets hurt the old-fashioned way, pulls a hamstring, or they have a couple guys go out with the virus, he's a guy that you can plug in there, and he's still a serviceable player for a team that that does want to win they're not just going out there like some other years or some other teams this year where uh where they're not trying to compete so he he's a guy that you can stick in there and and expect to get production from uh, and he doesn't cost a lot so for, for all those reasons you know maybe he doesn't maybe you never see him on the field but i, I have a feeling you will just because that this is such a strange season this spring tra- or whatever spring training 2.0 is is bizarre so we don't know regular injuries are going to be more prominent this year than, than in other years less days off that kind of thing so so the more guys you have around who can actually play in a major league game and, and you know isn't just a guy who was in double A last year, I think that's that's only going to help them. So I, I understand why they did it, but I you know I, I'm sure they're not eager to have him on the field because if he is, that means uh, a few things have gone wrong. Yeah, I think what we've seen from Brody thus far is that his his plan has always been that that B squad has to be very close to the A squad that there's not a big fall off and you're not like all right who the hell is this guy coming into play we never heard of this guy before Melky Cabrera has has played at a very high level at times and maybe he's not at that same player but we saw Roger Davis and uh, I think the AAA team last year had more big league time <laughs> than the major, the Mets major league team had major league time so that's where you look at having that kind of roster and being able to fill the roster that way I think he's done a great job of that thus far early on in his tenure being out there at City Field getting to watch some of these inner squad games has on both sides of the ball who's really stood out to you pitchers are just you know they they just look really good so far you know Mats was was really good DeGrom looks like DeGrom you know I, I feel like if if they said tomorrow uh, you know, is opening day. Those guys are ready to go. You know, the the, the hitters are, are catching up. Cespedes, just seeing him on the field is just encouraging. You know, if you're a Met mm-hmm. fan, he's not full bore yet, uh, but, you know, he's he's out there and he's, even though he's not running during the games, he, you can see him doing drills and he, you know, he looks healthy. As uh, Louis Rojas and, and, and Van Wagenen have both said, you know, he can hit and uh, and he hasn't lost any of that. You know, he was up there against Seth Lugo and just, you know, hammering balls and that's what would fire me up as a, as a Met fan is, uh, as, as Brody said, you, you can dream a little bit now because Cespedes looks like a player again. And you said full bore there with no pun intended, nah, so great no, pun. Great job, uh, Dan Martin. That's why they pay him the big bucks. That's straightforward creative. That's what he is. <laughs> he said it and just kept continuing the sentence and I'm here like giggling like a little schoolgirl. Um, <laughs> do you see him playing like, because I worry about him in left field, and I think a lot of Mets fans do, that he will get hurt out there. But we can't deny the fact that he's a better arm and he's better defensively than J.D. Davis. And as much as I like Tom Smith, he's a 10 times better than Tom Smith, that experiment in left field. Do you think he's five days a week, four days a week left field, a couple DH, or do you see it more DH? How do you see that balance? I mean, I, I would think he'd be more DH, but I do know they want to keep that role open so that they can rotate guys, whether that's, you know, Cano, you know, they've got five or six guys who are good candidates for DH 
just for some of the reasons you just said, that there's no great position for them. Some of the guys are older, like Cano. But I, I'd be skeptical of putting him out in the outfield too often. I know he was he's a good outfielder, but you've got him for his bat. At this point, I would, I would start him off DHing as much as possible and then kind of work him into the outfield. All right, Dan, last one before we let you go. And it's the guy we mentioned every week. He doesn't want to be a distraction, but we got to mention him every week. It's Jed Lowry, and he's got a brace bigger than anything I've ever seen on his left leg, yet he's probably going to be on this roster. What is his role? Is he going to be able to play the field? Is he going to wear that brace all year? I assume he's the backup third baseman with McNeil starting and maybe he gets some spot starts, but what do you see his role? I, I would hesitate to call him the backup third baseman right now. I think uh, Rojas mentioned it the other day that at some point he's, he could be an option at third base, and frankly, I, I was surprised that he said that because it just seems impossible with the way he's moving. You know, he actually, uh, at one of the scrimmages or inter-squad games that I was at, he doubled off DeGrom, like a legit bomb to deep center field. Uh, and, you know, he, he got to second base. You know, he wasn't sprinting, but he just doesn't look like a guy who can play defense. I'm not sure he can run the bases. Brody said uh, afterwards, or the next day, I guess, that the, you know, the at-bats that he saw from, from Larry the day before looked like Lowry, you know, working the, working the count, waiting for his pitch, taking advantage of his pitch when he got it, uh, which is all true. You know, the approach is good. Uh, he's still got the bat, but man, that, that brace is something else. It's been so long since he's played in a competitive game, and there's just so much mystery surrounding the whole thing. Whenever he talks, he just makes it more confusing than it already is. For him, I can't believe he would play third base this year. Yeah, it's it's too bad we don't have, like, the street baseball rules where, like, the, the fast person can pinch run for the fat guy like me. Uh, <laughs> because that would work well for Lowry. Just let him hit and then have a guy getting ready to run. I think that they, they've put in so many new rules that maybe that'll be the next one. That yeah, might be one. I'm all in for that. Uh, the Mo Vaughn rule, we'll call it. Uh, Dan Martin, follow him on Twitter or not because he hasn't tweeted in a couple of years. Figgy's already following him right now just to, out of spite him. for me. Uh, but My read guy. his stories exclusively in the post and at nypost.com. Dan, appreciate you uh, joining the show today. Thanks, fellas. All right, joining us now as we look back to the 2000 Mets, the 20th anniversary of the 2000 Mets. It is a big part of that bullpen. He was a reliever on that team and had a great run with the Mets from 97 to 2001. And guess what, Figgy? It is Turk Wendell. But if you go south of the Mason-Dixon line, it is Turk Wendell. Turk, welcome to Amazing But True. What What are your thoughts, first off, on this 60-game season? You as a reliever, it, you know, if, if you were pitching in this, it would have to shake things up in your preparation it'd be kind of cool because i was sitting there thinking maybe i have a chance to pitch in every game this season <laughs> <laughs> could you could yeah, you, you, try, you, would, you would try oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe i don't know i don't know i've had mixed feelings on a lot of this stuff as far as the 60 game season i'm almost at first i was thinking 60 games why bother sadly enough i think guys may be rushing to get ready for the season they've all been working out but it's not the same and crazy to tell you you can do exactly everything you do all winter long to get ready for spring training but you're still sore after a week of spring training because it's just not the same and i think a lot of it may be just from wearing spikes but uh, I just hope guys don't rush to get ready and then they get hurt. Because if a guy gets hurt, and it's, I mean, it may cost him the entire season to get back from an injury. You know, a lot of times oblique injuries or quads or groin muscles, those, those are tough to come back from if you don't get it all cleared up right away. It can linger the whole, for a long time. I'm very disappointed in some of the changes they've made as far as, I mean, what the heck is this starting with a guy on second base if it's tied? I mean, we're not. 10 years old and it's a hurry up uh, with it, right hurry up and get it over with kind of thing yeah well and that's the that's the thing that, that bothered me the way the game's changed in the last i don't know maybe 10 years or so that 
everyone's gripe on the games are too long. Well, you go to a football game and people tailgate for five or six hours or eight hours before the game, and then they go in and watch a game that lasts whatever three hours, and they're all happy. Well, if I'm spending four or five hundred dollars to take my wife and two kids to a ball game and the game lasts five hours, I'm happy I got my money's worth. If the game lasted an hour and 20 minutes, people are going to start bitching. They're not getting their money's worth. Well, I think, Turk, part of it, too, is they stopped selling beers after the seventh inning. So I've been at a 20-inning game, and I'm like, it's like the 14th, <laughs> and I'm like, God damn it, I want a beer, and all I could get is like a Gatorade. So that's part of it. Yeah. Well, and the sad thing is the new ballparks are just, I mean, they're beautiful. They have all the modern amenities and, and any kind of food you can think of eat to eat but it's sad for me because the last thing people do is actually sit and watch a damn game there's so many other things to do and it's kind of cool that some of these ballparks have a deal out in like i think city field you play wiffle ball with your kid out in center field well why in the hell would i want to spend a hundred dollars for a ticket and i go put wiffle ball with my kid in the outfield i'm going to take him to a park to win for wiffle ball or see people go eat at a restaurant inside the stadium during a game well, why the hell didn't you just go to a restaurant and eat and then save whatever much money you spent on a ticket to the game? I don't understand any of that stuff. If I'm going to go to a ball game, I'm going to sit my ass in the seat and watch the game. You're starting the 12th inning with a guy on second base, and you're the pitcher that comes in. Well, now you're mm-hmm. going to get nailed with a freaking loss. Earn run, earn run and a loss because the guy already started at second base. Yeah, it's like when you're a kid, the magic man on second. <laughs> and, <laughs> and now I get, what do you get? I get, you get nailed with an earned run, too, on top of a loss. How does that work? It could be that, you know, if these games go long. They're going to run out of balls. they got to use a new ball like every pitch now with coronavirus. That By the time if a game got 20 innings, they might have to call in Rawlings and be like, can you guys send us uh, some new balls? Turk Wendell joining us here on Amazing But True. Um, Turk, we wanted to look back to 2000, obviously, 20-year anniversary. Memorable team. Me, I was nine years old. It was actually the first full season that I was a Mets fan. I was started in around 99, but 2000, I was hooked. And that was such a, and I say it a lot, a ragtag bunch and we had Mike Piazza on a couple months ago and we've talked with Fonzie we've talked with John Franco but there had there was a couple of stars but it was more of a team that just banded together and had guys like Timo Perez and Daryl Hamilton and Derek Bell and had some ragtag guys do you like do you look at it that team and you kind of just were a band of brothers and just tight-knit unit that uh made magic happen I I look at it as is a really unique group of guys that the camaraderie was second to none. And, and, and the thing that really separated us was, yeah, we didn't. I mean, Piazza was our big superstar player, and it, and it wasn't like we had five or six or, you know, eight superstar players. And then that camaraderie, I think a lot of teams try to buy, but when you get all these really good players, the egos clash. And that was the thing that made us so special that none of us cared who the hero was today or who was going to be the hero as long as we won the game called it bad. There wasn't one guy who was trying to steal the spotlight. I just think that's what made us good to very good. I was playing for Bobby V. I loved it. I love Bobby V. He he likes the uh he likes the media attention and everything, which takes the pressure off or the attention off the players and the players can just play the game. And he's kind of a no nonsense kind of guy and uh, I had a situation where I wasn't ever pitching. And I go from being a closer in Chicago to a setup guy closer, and I get traded to the Mets, and now I'm a long reliever. Never pitch. 
what the hell? If I hadn't pitched for the fifth inning in 98, well, I wouldn't pitch. So I came in a game in Toronto in 98, and uh, the third inning, I think it was, and Nomo had the uh, back spasm. So I came in, and it was a tie game, and I got through one inning, and then the next inning, I think we scored three or four runs, and so now it's probably the fifth inning or something like that. And uh, I go back out to the bottom of the fifth, and we're in Toronto, and getting out. I walked the guy, gave up the hit, and I, I threw over the first to keep the guy close, and I noticed it wasn't like I was rubbernecking the bullpen, but I noticed somebody was warming up. So I thought to myself, well, this, you got to be kidding me. What the hell is somebody warming up for? This is my second inning pitching. I'm a longer lever. It just tells me, you know, he doesn't have confidence in me or something. Well, it didn't make matters worse for me because Sean Green took him deep on like two or three pitches later, and uh, our, our whole bullpen imploded that day, and so the next day, I went into Valentine and I said, look, I need to know what you think I need to work on to be a better player. And I said, don't sugarcoat it. I'm a man. I can handle the truth. And you tell me what I need to work on because it's going to make me better. And it's going to make our team better. And he said, look, I don't care how you get guys out. You just got to get them out. Okay, who can't handle that? And at this point in the game, or this season, I think I pitched in uh, 32 games. I think we're at, I think we had about 100, or no, I think we had 50, 55 or 56 games left. So we go back to New York. The next day, we play the Expos, or a day or two later. I think Leiter was pitching, and we got a one-run lead. Seventh inning rolls around. Leiter gets to the seventh phone ring, starts in the game. I'm like, holy shit. I'm in the game. I'm, I'm in a setup now. I'm in a setup role. What the hell's going on here? And I go out. I get 3-2 on the first guy. Get him out. Next guy, 3-2. Get him out. Uh, next guy, 3-2. And I walk him. Well, now I got a one-run lead. Preston Wilson's up. Anyhow, he brought in. I think I got Preston Wilson out. But there was still a guy in first with, with two outs. He brings in Franco to face, face Mike Lansing. I came in and threw my glove on the bench. And I said, this is bullshit. You're bringing in the lefty to face the righty. I can get that guy out. And he's like, well, hell, you went three and two on every guy. So I got him out, though. That was the bottom line. You said it. You didn't care. Johnny gives up a triple. The Lampton game's tied. I don't even know if he won or lost the game. But I just remember not being able to sleep that night because I acted like an ass on the bench and threw my glove and kind of acted like a baby, you know. First thing I did the next day after working out and everything and bouncing, we got to the field. I went right in the office to apologize to him for doing that. And he said, look, I, I don't care what happens in the heat of battle. We all say and do things that we regret. But I know you want to pitch, and you're not free to pitch in any situation. And at that point in the season, we had 54 games left, and I threw in 33 of them. I don't know. As I said, he, he helped me. And, uh, you know, and then I ended up pitching every day. And after I got carried over to Phillies, I ended up having a, a cluster tendon, terminator tendon surgery. And Bobby Valentine uh, apologized to me when the Mets were in town playing the Rockies because I was on the BL and I went down to the park too, everybody. He said, yeah, that's probably my fault. I'm sorry. I said, heck no. I mean, I, I get paid to play baseball. He told me to pitch. I pitch. It was just part of the job. Casualties of, of the game. Did you love New York? Did you love playing New York? Uh, do you identify yourself mostly as a Met more than a Cub? Absolutely. Uh, I don't really have any ties to Cubs, unfortunately. Um, I do a lot of stuff for the Mets and around, around the um, actual New York area area. Truth be told, I never wanted to play in New York. I, I'm a Red Sox fan, grew up in Massachusetts, so I despise the Yankees, and uh, I don't like big cities. So I said I never wanted to play in New York for those reasons. And then, as most baseball players know, you can think whatever you want, but don't say it out loud, because baseball gods are always listening. <laughs> and uh, baseball gods hit me in the ass. I got traded to the Mets, and uh, hands down, it was absolutely the best thing that happened to me career yeah you were known uh, coming up as one of the most superstitious players of all time and i remember because 
me following in your footsteps, I used to jump the line and mine was because I was playing against MIT in college and the ground was wet. And so I had to jump from grass and not try and touch the dirt. So my spikes didn't get clogged up and I would jump the line. They're like, oh, you're just like that Turk Wendell guy. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I, I get it. But I go, he does a lot more things. So you used to do all those crazy things. I think the history is known on all these things that you did and all Mets fans will know that. My question to you is, have you ever played with anybody that was more superstitious than you? I guess not off the wall. I mean, as far as things on the field, but there was there was a lot of guys that uh, just did weird things that you're going, well, you know, what the heck? Like, I mean, you've heard Wade Boggs eating chicken and exactly the same time every day. We had a guy with New York, had a genie, would pour a beer over his head before the game. He went on to play over in, I think, Japan and had a great career in Japan. He wasn't, he wasn't with them. That's for, you know, I don't know, maybe a, a handful of games or something like that. But, you know, everyone has a certain thing they do, and, and it's just, it's not as noticeable as some of the dumb stuff I did on the field. It's not so much a superstition as it is a routine because as baseball players, we play every single day and you have to get to that highest level every single day. And to do that, you have to establish a routine. And I've found that looking back at, at baseball and the time that I played, that most players that have played usually from four plus years, they all have a routine and they follow it religiously every day. I mean, they might tweak it here and there, but that's just how they, they follow and succeed. And it's getting you into a comfort zone. You know, I, I, it kind of struck me, uh, I think it was three years ago, watching the Red Sox game. Now with the Dodgers, Joe Kelly, kid throws 100 miles an hour. For me, if you throw 100 miles an hour, you shouldn't have an ERA below three. And I just, I don't I mean, that's just the way I feel. I mean, maybe it's just my competitiveness or whatever, but I mean, it's not only he throws 100, but he's got a nasty breaking ball and it's been a great changeup too. I mean, excuse me. He's a great player. I don't think he's a pitcher yet. You know, here's a guy that throws that hard, and he got a very lucrative contract with the Dodgers. But I think he could have, he could be a top of the line closer. But more of my, the whole point of my story is during that Red Sox game, they gave him, they interviewed him in game, and they talked about what his daily thing was, his daily routine. And he said he didn't have one. He decided to just do whatever. I would always tell younger players that you can't fly by the seat of your pants. You know, depending on whether you pitch good or bad, you have to have a routine. And to me, the the greatest players watching them in the clubhouse, like a fly on the wall, watching Sandberg and watching Andre Dawson and Maddox and just guys that were super successful and how they carried themselves every day. And that's pretty much what it was. They, they had the routine and they stuck with it. They didn't dwell on a bad game or ride the highs of a, of a good game. Yeah, and you were, you were voted the most superstitious athlete of all time by Men's Journal. Can you just give us like a Cliff Notes version of, you know, some of the superstitious things that you did besides, you know, jumping over the line? Well, I think the thing that really got talked about a lot was just brushing my teeth in between innings and chewing black licorice. And I had a bad taste in my mouth in rookie ball. And human nature is through success and failure. We keep doing things or we don't do things. And rookie ball, a bad taste in my mouth. I had the bat boy run up and grab me a, a toothbrush because I could brush my teeth. And next inning, I went out and struck the side out looking. So I'm like, whoa, I'm on something here. You know, and it's the thing, comfort zone comfort zone you feel good you play good we're humans and human nature is if we if we don't feel good it's going to affect us somehow some way that's why guys are always adjusting their batting gloves or their spikes or their jersey or something like that because it, it just don't quite feel 100 percent, and they want to make sure they feel as, as good as they possibly can whether it's every pitch or what or whatnot one of the things that I remember, more than those superstitious little things, one of the things that I remember 
was before LeBron James, the master of the rosin bag. The rosin bag toss. You'd go behind the mound and you would tap, you would tap, tap. And you remember the Shea Stadium would rise to their feet waiting for you to spike the rosin bag down onto the ground. That's what I'm saying. Before there was a LeBron James doing it in the pregame and up in the air, you were spiking down that rosin bag and the, the fans would go absolutely ape when you did that. Yeah, so it was in Chicago. I gave up a home run and I was so pissed at myself. As the guy was circling the bases, they threw me another ball. And I, I mean, I, I grabbed that rod and back. I was so pissed and I threw that thing probably as hard as I could throw a fastball at the time. Yelled at myself to get my head under my ass and stay competitive. Because a lot of the times I was more focused on guys that were big main players, uh, you know, home run hitters, than the rookie or the backup player that, that's up to bat against me right now. You're not as focused. And you'll see that if you watch a game, closer comes in and he's, He's nailed when there's a one-run lead, but when there's a three-run lead, he's not as fine-tuned, it seems like, because he knows in the back of his mind. He has room for error, and so he's not as focused. I was yelling at myself to stay focused, stay aggressive, and stay motivated, and then I just carried that on uh, at the start of every inning from that day forward. I got to Philadelphia, and I was um, with Turk, and he took me under his wing very early in my career, and it was just about the most routine of things that it was second nature to him that as a rookie, I'm sitting like wanting to make sure I'm at the right place at the right time. I'm doing this the proper way. How many... I mean, it was almost like doing it all over again. Like I had done it for so long through the minor leagues, through, you know, the beginning of pro ball. And then you get to the major leagues and it was like, okay, now what do I do to stay here? How do you do, what is it about your routine that keeps you here? And the focus on, on controlling the things that you could control. That was really what I learned from Turk and and it helped me immensely. Um, There was also dealing with fans off the field, um, before the interaction on on social media and anything like that, I sat down with Turk and he was going through some of his mail. Uh, I want you to talk maybe if you can a little bit about some of the mail that you were receiving in Philadelphia. And, you know, I, I want the fans to hear exactly, you know, what kind of things that a, a pro ball player deals with on a daily basis that they may not know about. Well, I mean, I'm not going to sure that that either. When I came over to the, to the Phillies, I mean, I sucked. I had, uh, I was, you know, getting paid a lot of money. So I'm trying to push myself to honor that amount of money that I was making. You know, my eyeball was sore and I'm not going to really say anything. And, and that's just probably my stupid competitiveness too. That, uh, and I try to tell kids today, play the game smarter, not harder. But, you know, I want to live up to it, to the contract that I'm being paid. But, uh, so I'm not pitching well and, I'm getting fan mail that says they wish I died, that they that saw me, they kill me, they wish I was in uh, the Twin Towers when they went down, and all this kind of crazy stuff. And, you know, getting all kinds of different death threats, thinking, what the heck, you know, I'm just here to play ball. <laughs> and uh, that's the one thing I liked about New York. I mean, I, I pitched bad. I said, hey, you know what, I pitched bad, and I'm going to be better tomorrow. And I think that's one of the reasons why I don't remember a lot of games is because when the game was over, to me, it was over and done with. And I was looking forward to pitching in the next game, the next day. That was my only goal when the game was over the next game. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a tough uh, adjustment to play in Philly as opposed to New York because of that, that, you know, that fan mail and that fan base uh, wanted me dead <laughs> pretty much. Not everybody. I mean, they, I shouldn't classify that as all the fans, but I came off the field in one particular game and 
my elbow kind of just blew up and I blew the game against the Braves, I think it was. And media was in front of me in my locker and they said, you know, what about the fans? And they were yelling at me as I was coming off the field and I kind of motioned to them, well, if you don't like it, then go home. No one's making you sit here and watch me suck. They said that, you know, what about the fans? And I said, well, you want to see what kind of fans you got? And I turned around and I read him one of those letters. And they all sat there in awe, just going, wow, I can't believe people actually send stuff like that. And so then uh, I had surgery and then I come back from surgery and pitching really well in 2003 with the Phillies. And one of the reporters asked me, you know, aren't you glad the fans are uh, on your side now and they're rooting for you because you're pitching well? And I said, not really. If there are true fans, they should boo me now too. You shouldn't just jump on the bandwagon. If you don't like somebody, you don't like somebody. And just like them because they're doing well or hate them because they're doing bad. One of the things that Turk did that season, and I'll never forget it, is you talk about the fans, and I think it might have even been that game when you came off the field. You made one fan very happy with a souvenir. You threw your glove about 18 rows up. <laughs> into the stands as we came towards yeah. the dugout. So it was, it was definitely the glove. I remember we laughed about it. It was like, it's the glove's fault. It absolutely was the glove's fault. The glove had to be sacrificed. He threw his glove up into the stands, and it, it was that level of frustration that you saw in him, and, and you felt for him in that moment because – all those things that he said, he's trying to honor his contract, which a lot of players just sit back and, hey, I earned this money already. No, now that you're getting paid is as when you want to start showing that you were worth that kind of commitment. That's the values that Turk Wendell, Wendell has and I've, I've always looked up to. Dealing with that kind of animosity, the whole while he was grooming all us rookies uh, of what to expect. Uh, I, I got my first big league watch from Turk Wendell, which I still have to this day. Um, he gave us the option, uh, either a watch or a big league suit? Which one do you want? I figured I would hopefully grow out of my boyish figure at 150 pounds and the suit would have done me no good in, in five to 10 years. But the watch I still have and I still use and it's a constant reminder of the integrity and of the hard work that was put in just to get to that major league level. And I always wanted to thank you for that. Well, you're very welcome. And uh, I'm glad that you uh, still have it. And it was my absolute pleasure to, uh, you know, I, I think just paint it forward pretty much some of key member of that 2000 Mets team that 99 team and we enjoyed watching you Turk and we appreciate you coming on the show with us today well my pleasure folks thank you so it's good so it's, uh, so it's good to be wanted for something I suppose so I appreciate <laughs> you having me on the show thanks Turk love you brother and that's a wrap for episode 9 of Amazing But True our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post Thanks to Jake, as always, for producing the show. Make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you're using Apple, rate us five stars and write in a nice positive review. Boost us up those charts. For Nelson Figueroa, I'm Jake Brown. We will be back on Thursday with opening day just a week away. We'll talk to you then. Stay safe, folks.